I'm Heidi Zuckerman, and this is Conversations About Art. I've spent my life connecting people to art to make their lives better. This podcast talks about art in contemporary culture and why we should care. Each episode is an impactful conversation with people I find interesting and think you will too about their life, values, and always about why they think art matters. This is Conversations About Art. Hey everyone, thanks so much for tuning in today. You probably guessed that I am so excited about this conversation with Dara Birnbaum. I was really, really looking forward to it and she asked that we record on video and since the podcast that I did with Tom Sachs during the pandemic, when I used to record on video and he said, Heidi, your audience can't see us, so it's cheating. If we're on video, we can only record on audio. I've been recording on audio since then. But Dara, of course, is a video maker, as she references in our conversation, and it made so much sense that we be on video. And so we were looking at each other while we had this conversation. And you'll note there are a couple of times where I describe the fact that she used quotation marks with her fingers around certain of the topics. We had such an amazing conversation. Uh, We started out by talking about joy and how art can save lives. We talk about Bonnard and Monet and Rodchenko. We talk about winning and we talk about spiritual practice. What is winning? You know what I mean? This is a lovely capitalist word, you know, not that it doesn't exist everywhere else. But I I had a friend tell me, oh, Nam June said, the only way to win is to run against yourself. Okay, not not that. But what is this thing about winning? I know you're going to enjoy the conversation and having conversations like this. It's so meaningful to me, and being able to share them with all of you, it, it matters. It matters so much. So thank you so much for listening today. So I can see you, and I'm curious about some of the things that I can see in your background. I just like it. So are you in your studio? Or are you in your home? They mesh together. Oh, okay. There, there are no divisions anywhere and there is a lot of stuff so I'm in what might be called my work area studio area how do you approach your practice these days so I know you were just sick and so you were out for a bit and so I'm glad that you're back and I know that you have birds for company and I hope we get to hear them in in the background or the foreground actually bird song is one of my favorite things in the whole world and I think to be able to have bird song in an urban space is a bonus. So, Well, the, the two birds, I don't know if you can hear them, but I also put on a, I have an electronic device that creates bird songs. It's for them, but I think it's for me as well. So that's off right now. <laughs> you know, I, I think sometimes the, the most interesting way into a conversation is the kind of inadvertent or offhand information that gets shared. And so I'm 
very struck by this idea that you are accompanied by these live birds who sing, and then you also play for them and for you like a soundtrack of birds. And there's a, a kind of humor to that as well, and the way that some of that connects to your work and the connection between the reality of an experience and then the recorded imagery of the experience and how you conflate the two. I've kind of, as you know, done many years mostly of appropriation, but I'd say that bird signal, mechanical, electronic, whatever it's doing, and my birds, I haven't appropriated their song yet. However, I don't know if you remember the Louise Lawler work that does say, right, famous artist names as if they're bird songs or something like that. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yep. The we, last time I heard that was actually in Los Angeles. So now I am talking to you in California, right? Yes. And uh, that's the last time I heard Louise's piece. So, yeah. You know, we showed that work in the elevator at the Aspen Art Museum when I was the director there. And we, we did an exhibition which was called The Stories We Tell Ourselves. We love that piece. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. The, it, it's the artist's name. Yes. Mainly a lot of male names. Male, exactly. Yep. Yes. Yep. <laughs> That's exactly right. You know, if they were birds, they might have froze an aspen at the wrong time of the year. I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, to stay with this topic for a second more, I spent 14 years in Aspen, and the winters were never something that I loved. And so... One of the things that characterized the winter was that the birds were gone. And so I always remembered like the day that I would wake up and hear bird song again. And it was so hopeful to me. It was just like this kind of joyful day because it was about that. And it was about like so much more as well. Yeah. I've never been to Aspen and I don't ski, but I do remember in places that are north, or in mountains that become an elevation, you know, that the joyousness that will come in as the light changes and the everything starts to revert in the springtime, including the migrations of the birds coming back to you, you know. So they, they come back, and uh, I think there's a great joy, you know, there's a great joy that happens. I think so, too. Interestingly, we were at a holiday party last night and we were speaking to a couple who have lived in California, like in Orange County, LA area, like their whole life. And the woman, it was a male, female couple. And, and she said that, you know, her dream is to live somewhere else. And I said, where, you know, where do you want to live? And she said, well, don't laugh. I, I'd really like to live in New Jersey or, (laughs) you know, or in Maryland. And her husband said, well, why? Tell them why. And she's like, I, I don't know why, except for I just think it would be amazing to experience like the seasons. And um, <laughs> sorry, you've gotten me back in a good mood. But why <laughs> those states? I, I right? don't know. You know what I mean? I, I don't know. But that's nice. Just yeah. pick two states that sit outside of uh, places one thinks of as landmark or demarcated. So Jersey being next to New York City, Maryland being next to Washington, D.C. 
right? So it's a very strange kind of placement, right, for seasons. I don't think she's been to either. And yeah, I I thought it was funny too, like the the choice. You know, I love that that reference that you made to to the joy that comes with change. And so what are what are some of the places where we find joy and joy and wonder? You know, for me, they're the two places, well, three, I would say, and I I'd love to hear from you what you think. For me, my places of joy and wonder are art, nature, and family. And family. Yeah. Why why do you call them places? Can I ask you? Mm. Mm. Yeah. That's an interesting thing to pick up on, the nomenclature of that. I mean, I guess nature feels more place-like, but somehow I, I think about like a dimensionality to them, which for me somehow feels place-like. They're, they're non-static, multidimensional, and they're, I feel like they don't exist everywhere, you know? So it's like they're places where they are and places where they're not, you know? I have recently thought mainly from uh, certain things, but uh, that have awakened me to how important a relationship for human to nature is. I was born in New York City, and I've now been back in New York City for about 45 years. So when you live in concrete glass steel with a couple of trees sticking up, you have certainly developed a very different approach and maybe a forgetful approach in a way to what nature can be. I do think, especially now, uh, talking about art, nature, family as relationship, in a way, Uh, because I do think there are many types of family, although nothing replaces blood, you know, relatives, that the necessity of realizing a better view, uh, overview of the world meaning that we are not without nature, we are not without art, we are not without family, if we look in a broader way toward what we are, what what the planet is, you know, in a way. Uh, to me, to me. I, I'm getting older and different things are occurring to me. There's much more a feeling of being, thanks to gravity, on a very vastly spinning planet, world. I think that joy can permeate almost everything that is with us if we have learned, which we haven't yet, to really appreciate what we've been given and help toward creating it the way artists create instead of destroying it. It's a profound thought, a really amazing realization, right? About the things that maybe previously were separate and the interconnectedness 
of things, but also this idea of being able to locate joy in things that maybe were previously overlooked because you can now, you know, appreciate everything for what it is. And I mean, the sheer like unbelievability of it, right? Like the fact that we're on a planet that's spinning. I mean, you know that, right? You've known that like for decades, right? You're birthed into it, but you, uh, many people, I think, and we're, we're all, as you know, uh, seem to be very busy, quote, people, you don't take recognition of it. And uh, when, when you are able to, us to stand here and talk, we're, we're standing on the foundation of something spinning like crazy, you know, in a, in a universe we don't understand. I don't want to get too heavy about it, but I think that art, as we call it, it is something that can help through the geniuses we've been blessed with along the way to open our eyes and maybe our hearts toward this kind of perception to challenge what the more normal perception is, to extend it, to challenge it, to question it. When you talk about place, I remember the first time that I got to see a Bonnard painting in Paris. I had grown up, I did, loving Bonnard as much as I'm Marxist and conceptual, but the purples, especially in the light of Paris, come at you in no way you will ever see in a book, in a reproduction. And uh, the same goes for someone like Munch in Northern Light. The, the first time I could be, you know, in Scandinavia with those paintings under natural light, that's so amazing. So I think we live in a world that has these wonders that we thank God have kept existent. But mostly, many of us have, because of the speed that we live our lives, see them in books. <laughs> you know, we're seeing, I think, more art through iPhone and books or evading a Mona Lisa in order to take a selfie with it. You know, to me, it gets to be a stranger and stranger time. And I'm just hoping that artists like some of the people you've been conversing with are able to bring uh, something very special, I think, to this world. You know, one of the things that I ask everyone on the podcast is, is why art matters. You just answered that in a lot of ways. And the answers are so varied, you know, when I, when I ask people, and they're all so authentic and true. And I think that people often have a hope for art. Can, can you remember one or two of the statements that you felt were answering that in, in a deep way? Yeah, you know, I asked it of, of Sanford Biggers, and he gave probably the most succinct answer, which was, art matters because nothing else makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, you know, that's that's true. <laughs> uh -huh. 
I love Lucy. Uh, <laughs> thank you for repeating that on this. I think that for me, it's more about creative creativity. I think creativity can come through many different means in life. And I used to be a little jealous of my brother who became early on, he knew he wanted to be a doctor. He's younger than me. He acts older than me, but he's younger. And he uh, he really was very determined. And then uh, I thought, oh, my goodness, uh, he can save lives, you know. And it took me a long time to realize I can save lives, too, as an artist. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for saying that. That's what I believe to my core. Yeah. Very, very nice to finally realize no sibling rivalry here. One one way, one the other way. I don't know if art always makes sense. I love what he said. But I unfortunately believe probably that we as beings, our beings, our, our humanists, is not capable of understanding things that are in this universe to me, in this cosmos, a mystery. They remain a mystery. And maybe they're supposed to. But there are things that don't, quote, make sense. I, I think that sense can be made, one hopes, in many ways, and that would include art. So when you say that you realize that you know, art saves lives too, that, that you can save lives with art. Do you think about it in a abstract way or do you have specific stories? I, I, I wasn't thinking of specifics. I think I was thinking that maybe I shouldn't project so much, but what I would say is that great works for me have carried a emotive quality that can provide wondrous reflections or startling insights. So whether you're dealing with what might be sheer beauty, in a sense, Monet's gardens portrayed, you know, or a work that has a different way of reaching maybe its viewer, I meaning going more toward conceptual, more contemporary works. If it's a strong work, I think it it can awaken sensation and questioning within a viewer. Yeah, I do too. Uh, yeah. I grew up in New York City and I grew I grew up in Queens. Oh, I begged my mother to let me come in the city, and finally I could, you know. And I, I loved going to the original MoMA, as well as the Met. She would take me to the Met because I'd get lost in the Met. But I somehow, as a young child, somehow I made it. I loved seeing Rochenko's White on White at MoMA. I, I was pretty young. There was a little crowd around it. And I grew up, you know, in the, uh, I was born into the late 40s, growing up in the 50s or so. And this was the time, I believe, where a kind of, it was in the air, 
that our culture at that time would say even a monkey could do it. This, this was for reference to Jackson Pollock, for example. They would bring a monkey on TV on like a late night show and show how he could paint like Pollock. With the Rochenko, the white on white, at that time, I remember asking, I do believe it was the only work of art being shown at MoMA that did not have a slide of it, a slide reproduction. You know, you can buy the reproductions. Yeah. And that, that I think you can now. But that always hit me. And the small group of people around it, like, what the hell is this? What is this? You know, what, what is it? Oh, I loved it. I loved it. But I, I, I had very expensive taste. I would run past the sleeping gypsy, which I loved as a child, and run toward, toward yes, the, the Monet's and the garden. What was the triptych called? Uh, water lilies, uh, the water lilies. Mm -hmm. At that time growing up, there was a separate room, and they were under natural light. The last time seeing them at MoMA, I think, uh, I know is at MoMA, was maybe the third new opening, right, of the redesigned space. They took the, the water, the, the Monet, and they put it into the grand central floor, main floor, that is tremendously, you know, an atrium almost, right, ceiling, mm -hmm. exactly. and hung it linearly. And below it was the bar for the grand opening. I was at the first opening. It looked like a postage stamp. You know, so interesting. A bunch of things came up for me as you were talking. So I, um, I have a like a a coach that that I work with. A you know great thinker, kind of a religious scholar. And and the other day he said, you know, he shared being in this experience where. He said, people were like, what the hell is this? And it can be said with such anger, right? Like, oh, as if someone is trying to like pull something over on you, right? You know, but the tone could also be different. Like, what the hell is this? Right? The kind of like excitement and this joy and delight and the same kind of questions based on like what kind of intention you bring to the circumstance. And I'm just imagining people standing around the, the Rodchenko and a bunch of them being like, what the hell is this? You know, super angry. And you being like, what the hell is this? You know, and inspired. I didn't ask that question, but you, you're absolutely correct that it's lovely that the same words, very few words, what the hell is this? could mean polar opposite things mm -hmm. uh, in our sense of experience. Be because one, as you said, there's a bit of perhaps anger, frustration, the emperor's new clothes feeling, you know, or something. And on the other hand, I, I don't know who you've been studying with is a what we call sometimes an, an open heart and within if one can keep one's openness in that sense that is when something can reach you and i think this type of mainly what had been in the arts western european pre-knowledge 
and that's existing around the world. Read the blue guide first and then see what it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. In a way, this uh, pre-consciousness that's put into us about a Mona Lisa, for example, to the point where you don't know the real thing anymore. Yeah. You know, I was struck by that too, when you were talking about Monet and being installed vertically instead of horizontally and, and over. No, no, it was horizontal. It was horizontal to match the bar, to match the bar underneath. Okay. Okay. It's still like a postage thing. Yeah. Yeah, Still bad. I mean, I, I've talked a little bit about, you know, my, my changing response to, to Monet too, where, you know, once I saw the work in natural light and it was in Japan, it totally changed my relationship to it. You know, I, I, I really, I couldn't understand why it was so popular. You know, it's not that I didn't like it, but I just, I had only seen it really on wrapping paper and on dish towels (laughs) and then seeing them, you know, in a, with natural light, I, I could see why, why they had that power and that magic to them. Well, I, you know, I, I do. I mean, I find it almost ironic that you're kind enough to extend the podcast to a, quote, video maker, and we're talking about Monet. I mean, you know, I, I was on a panel the other night, and, and I do think that whereas at, when I was young and starting with video, and no one in the arts, what I mean is the official arts museums, I galleries, commercial galleries, really care, in a way, to take it in. There was a certain freedom to that, you know, and to just working with something in that way. And I did not care about, that was not on my mind, to be shown in a museum, commercial gallery, etc. But in last night's, I think it was, talk, it had to do with, I almost feel that art right now needs a protective space in this juncture of our society. So what I'm saying is that it could be respected and brought to light in its pure sense of intention that the artist had. I'd love to ask you to talk a little bit more about this. So you referenced yourself as a video maker, and we're actually recording on where we're talking on video and our audience will only hear us on audio. I was struck by the fact that you're like, no, no, we're going to look at each other while we talk. And so when you referred to yourself as a video maker, you used your fingers and, and you kind of made quotes like quotations. <laughs> fingers. So I, I'd love to ask you to, to talk a little bit more about that because that gesture means something. <laughs> the pleasure of being able to see image. I, uh, yeah, in quotes, I also talked about this the other night, and and getting older now, uh, I I think we need to recognize we're in an age of what I call like a fluidity, that there's a lot of slippage that goes on, and we, as I grew up, in a society that loves to name and label. I had a friend uh, who was very bright, but very mean in part, right? And he'd see me and tease me and say, oh, you, feminist video maker, right? 
Uh, oh, oh, please don't say that, you know? And it's becoming true. If I have a book out, that's what goes on the back cover, feminism, video, whatever. It is fine that for this period, we I came up, I started video later in 75. I did architecture first. And I came into a group that I think would very much wanted to call it video. And, and video meant supposedly, I see, I see. And that, that was the dominance of it. And as we move along, because of how fast technology moves in part and, and what the conditions, you know, of making work are, you know, we are, a lot of artists are shifting. Oh, I, no, I'm not a video artist. I'm a media artist. No, I still do film. I'm still on celluloid if it exists. This idea of the video artist, you know, it, it it's fine to name it, and I think it is and has been existent, but I think it's in a state of flux. What about the feminist part? What about it? No, I, I, as I said, I, I went to college pretty early. I, I, I was 16 when I got there. I should be complete. After three weeks in pre-med, I mean, at 16, what do you know? of uh, getting down to fetal pigs, I realized this is nothing I can do. I tried to walk and think, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I always loved art, but I wanted to protect that love in myself, actually. Hmm. I didn't see it as something to be shared. What happened is I was walking the streets of Pittsburgh. I was at Carnegie Mellon. Oh, what can I do? And I thought, well, I love art, but I love math. I love science. I'll go into architecture. So I retested. I went into architecture. I was the only woman to graduate in three years. I was the only woman in my class. Right? How do I get to what you wanted me to speak about, which was originally... The feminist question. Oh, the feminist. Yeah. I keep avoiding it. Uh, is that... Is that I? I fought my way through six years of being the only woman in a class of all men, but I didn't do it as a feminist. And when I grew up, which is and again I'm making some signs here, like quoting, grew up. I felt my growing up years were the years I lived in Berkeley. I lived in Berkeley from about 1970 to 74, five in there. It was a fairly radicalized time still. And at that time, and it's unfortunate, it, it felt, you know, the new left was already breaking apart. And it felt as if one were going to be in this segment or that segment. And I chose Marxism and I chose class over what then was becoming the first generation of feminists. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that perhaps I, I loved what the Gorilla Girls have been trying to do. It, in one of their posters, it said something like, don't worry about anything about the art that you're going to try to make, because whatever you do, it'll be called feminist. Mm. Right? 
And I understand, I honor those people who fought for incorporating the understanding of a position, of a position through their work. And I certainly do think that speaking as a woman, then doing Wonder Woman, technology transformation, Wonder Woman, can certainly be seen as, a, as a, a, in part, a feminist gesture in the arts. Although at the beginning, it actually was put down by a lot of women artists who called themselves feminists because of appropriating the image of a woman that looked like an hourglass. Yeah, it's very difficult. Very yeah, difficult. you can't win, right? <laughs> it's like <laughs> I, I used. I love to that word, that, but I, I don't. I don't think that. I think that if you, what is winning? You know what I mean. This is a lovely capitalist word. You know, not that it doesn't exist everywhere else. You know, but I, I had a friend tell me, oh, Nam June said the only way, and I'm not sure he said this, and I did very much, you know, honor it, Nam June. The only way to win is to run against yourself, okay? Not not bad, but what is this thing about winning? <laughs> you know? yeah. Someone asked me yesterday if I was competitive, and I tied that to the notion of winning, but not winning so that someone else is losing, right? You know, can you win if someone else doesn't not win, you know? And then, of course, now we have the idea that, you know, everyone gets to win just by like showing up or participating. And But the the reference to the word, just like you asked me at the start of our conversation about why I describe joy as a place or the places of joy, there are so many words that are embedded in our everyday language without necessarily the thought around some of the other implications or the meaning or where it, where it comes from, right? So just even the phrase like, oh, you can't win. Um, well, who's trying to win, right? And what, and what, you know, who's playing? You know, I, I feel that I art making for me uh, within the structures of the institutions of the art world that I was exposed to, uh, that 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 was a rough road. Actually, I wouldn't say this was an easy road, and I do think that it's incorporated into our at least the society I grew up with in America, but elsewhere. This uh, concept of winning, you know, and I, I did. I loved being the brightest kid in my class, or this or that. I did. I loved it, but. I think I'm changing over time that winning at best for me means I've utilized my talent that I believe was gifted to me for this lifetime. I think everyone has something to give, just as the kind of cliche of the snowflakes. We're all different. What winning could be, perhaps, is if one is able to take advantage or or respect what you've been given and give it back, give it back, like in art making, give it back, uh, create it and let it go. And not everyone has that advantage. If you think of what's going on in this world, 
I would say one should be able, if that's your calling, your gift to be an artist. The art should come, well, for me, from the heart, but it should come from whatever you can make it with, whatever that is. And we were talking the other night about the the Cramla collection. They were in town for the opening of their new book about these tools of, of things like video, video media that get quite expensive relatively. But I think that that art itself, creativity, is if you have the privilege of picking up some of the tools, you, you find the tool you can to make your statement what, what you feel is necessary to say or question or beautify even, you know. What I mean, coming as someone who grew up hard and saw things as, oh, you can never win, the truth is, is I feel life to be a gift, yeah, a grace. And winning to me is... Uh, you may think, that, and your audience certainly may think this very strange. I get up every morning, and I'm thankful I have breath. I am thankful I, I have an adorable cat. My dogs have passed, you know. I have birds that chirp, their cage. But in that breath is what what will you do with that gift in your life? I do feel I treasure what I have in the arts. I I do treasure it very much. I think even starting three weeks in pre-med going to architecture, I was good in architecture. But I I think I landed where I'm supposed to be. You referenced earlier this idea of having an open heart. And I'm struck by the multiple references you've made to what I understand to me as a gratitude practice. I have a conscious approach to gratitude. And when you talked about waking up and and being grateful for the breath, like I, I understand that. That's something that I think about a lot. I wonder about the relationship for you between having an open heart and about making art. You know, the the pieces I'm best known for, like Wonder Woman Technology Transformation, actually, that's interesting. I've never re-examined it. It was an honest statement on my part. It was a statement I felt was highly necessitated, and therefore I do think it came from whatever we call heart. But it came from someone who me who felt that I will not put up with the stereotypes of women, especially, you're correct with that, that were being thrown at me by commercial industry. And that's been a lot in my work. I have the last few years also been doing some studies, uh, more toward a, a spiritual end. I don't know what gratitude studying is what a gratitude practice practice is could you tell me huh. i start my day with a journaling practice where i write things that i'm grateful for 
So a minimum of three things, you know, every morning. And, and then I end my day with also journaling around things that, that were wonderful about my day, things that I was, was grateful for. And so sort of bookending the day with an acknowledgement of, of things that are sometimes super small, sometimes are, are super huge. And, and sometimes I'm, you know, grateful for waking up. And sometimes I'm grateful for the company that I have, or I'm grateful for my practices or my rituals. It's just about taking the time at the start and the end of every day to write down that, that gratitude. Yes. 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 I think that uh, I'm only in the last few years being able to better know what I can mean by open heart. But I think for many years, I felt that great creativity comes from the heart. It also, of course, comes from insight and the mind and consciousness. But if you are not connected to the whatever symbolically the heart is meant to be for us, I believe in a, a sincere gesture, and as you use the word, one, one with it's an integrity, it's a, a intention. And I don't think one has to be necessarily conscious in the way we're talking about. But I, if I look back, I don't know why I'm going so far back in history to the first time I saw Rembrandt's portrait of himself as an old man. Mm-hmm. This is a very, very moving portrait. It is. Yeah. I think that the art, quote, world, I'll do those same quote things that no one can see. For me, uh, since the my birth into the end of the absolute, uh, the, the end of World War II, has gotten a little bit more tied in the longer I go into consumerism, you know, certain aspects of Uh, late capitalist consumerism, I do wonder sometimes when other artists are making their work, what is going through their mind. And I shouldn't have to know. It's read in the work. But we've become a society, I think, that almost produces too much, in the sense, you know, with burying ourselves in an avalanche of, of imagery and trying to keep profiting, not the artists, I think, but the marketing surrounding it, the kind of the currency, the huge hype two years ago of NFTs, you know, all of a sudden, many creative people I know trying to jump on it. And some people I think are very good. I think mainly it came more for me out of uh, when people, some artists were, were great with graffiti, you know, and that was then brought into the art world, you know, Futur and people like that. But uh, the NFTs all of a sudden hit and everyone's aiming for an NFT. And that's what I meant is, is that this world, if you start networking, you know, trying to tie uh, strings between points, you're going to miss a lot about what this world is about. Yeah. Yeah. What activated your interest in this spiritual practice? 
Well, thank you for calling it what it is. I am getting older. I think you can use that, what one calls as an elder, as as a certain, uh, you could if you wanted to say, oh my gosh, I've been through so much experience and I could bring this, hone it into more wisdom. And in our need, all of us, to be passing through whatever we're passing through that I don't understand, coming and going, I just felt that it would assist me to bring more consciousness towards what I'm doing, everything I'm doing, everything, both to find uh, ways to challenge my mind and my heart and my art, to never let go of the challenge of it, and yet to have that appreciation of every breath, to have a realization that I felt absolutely compelled to say the things I said with my work. It, it, it felt as if, again, this idea not everyone believes in, a gift. Uh, a, a gift is something you, you respect, but a gift is you don't ask from it. You, you hand it back in this life if you can. That's my feeling. Mm-hmm. And I do want to do the best work I'm capable of. And because I do think that actually art can lift essentially what one may call spirit. It can give a humanity. And what we were talking about the other night was the human condition. And I said, I'd like to challenge you to put an E at the end of human. Why don't we start thinking more about humane condition? There's so much to be said. I've done the best I can. I hope I will keep going. But there's a lot of young creative souls out there to hand this over to. But my greatest hope is, gosh, we need change. You know, so much. I did not think I would live to see, although I read about it for decades, the vast effect of climate change that I'm witnessing now. That will affect me in a very deep, it it does affect me every day in a very deep way. You know, so the smallest things I do, my art, my love to be passed on. And every Thanksgiving, I rescue a turkey instead of eating one, you know. (laughs) And yesterday, I gave my cat a gift, although someone told me, who's a spiritual person, no, not enough. The gift was that we now adopted a rhesus monkey out of uh, medical research. So he is now with Born Free Sanctuary in Texas. So that's our Christmas gift, you know what I mean? Yeah. But the person told me, I think you got to get your cat a toy too, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I'm thrilled that my gal has given me a toy for Christmas I haven't opened yet. But the other thing is having people whom believe in you. I want to say that there are a few people in my life, many people, but a few. Uh, I, I, I bless the day I was led into Marion Goodman Gallery. 
Marin is older now too. I've been 22 years with them. And I think having a support structure that is there for you and then making the sales rather than making the sales and not there for you, uh, that's a big twist, you know. And there are people, you know, the way I found video again now with someone in their late 80s, uh, Maria Gloria Bacocchi, by accident in Florence, you know, encouraging people, uh, just rarefied people whom it's a blessing, isn't it, to, to, to have that be, because this gives you your blood to keep going. It, it keeps really your does. own fire alive, you know. I'm not talking as much anymore about how I make things, what my studio looks like. <laughs> it looks like a mess. I don't know. Uh, yeah, even envy. I, I know artists now. It's become a thing to have studios in five different countries if you make it, right? Beautiful studios. Coming off of three years of work where I think I had two days off in three years mm. I took. And I, people thought I was going crazy. No, I had an intention to finish certain works, the retrospective, the survey show, the book. But coming out of that and getting COVID, which is always, I had realized I was teasing with one of the museum directors whom I love, I won't mention who, and saying to him two nights ago, God, COVID was such a blessing. It, it, it was the first time for me. I mean, I know people have passed, but uh, it, it was three weeks where I could just say to people, I'm sorry, I can't do it. <laughs> I just can't do it. And, and no one can say no to you, right? Mm -hmm. But he was saying, because he's going into a very, very curating, very large show, important show. Oh, I'm back where I was. I said, I know, how do we find that way to create those moments, you know? How do you make sure that you develop what we have to call a practice so that you take that moment of three things at the beginning and three things at the end of the day? It gives you strength, you know. Yeah. I had a conversation with a friend this morning who said, you know, I I have so much in my life. I have so many things to be grateful for you know, and he used that language and he said, and like more than ever before in my life. And he said, and, and I just don't feel happy, you know, and, and I don't know why, you know, we continue to talk and it, I think has a lot to do with, you know, caring, caring deeply about things and, and sometimes like the negative effect that caring so deeply can have. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, what's the antidote to that? And one of the things we talked about was creating more space, you know, space to be bored, you know, um, so that you might find out what, you know, what's next on your path. That is, can be true. I do have more and more disagreements with some people I know. They don't understand oh, how I feel I'm formulating right now. But for me, the actual importance is remaining active in any way I can, in the sense of, as I said, if I have a good mind, I, I think I do, to be honest, <laughs> challenge it and give it. And uh, if I save one turkey on Thanksgiving and don't eat one, keep adding up those actions. 
if I give a present, thank God, my brother wanted for a, uh, a food, there was a special chef, I'm forgetting his name, on the border of the Ukraine. We gave our money. I don't have hardly any money. I've made, thank God, a good career, but no money. Uh, the money went to that food kitchen for people coming across the border. The sadness of seeing what is happening in the Arctic, uh, what's happening to life forms, what's happening to polar bears that are climbing up uh, tremendous heights to try to find bird eggs because there's nothing they can eat anymore. That can paralyze you and with a, a sadness. But there is, I think, a lot of action that needs to take place to salvage what we perhaps have inadvertently destroyed. And that's what I want to do is to, every moment counts. And if you don't have good rest, as the Dalai Lama knows, you, you will not be very productive. Instead of saying, oh, look what's happening. How do we get involved? I, I, I still, I just found out today, it's eight years I am adding to the support of a child in Colombia. It's, it's a minor thing. And also, I thought originally he was going to be an artist. Well, he loves soccer. And I hope that soccer gets him money and gets him out, you know, in there. But any time, any day, any holiday, what can I do? What can I do to help? Yeah, me too. Me too. That's, I mean, that, that is my practice, you know, and and what you're talking about, like the saving of the turkey or, you know, for me, it's called doing merit and doing merit, you know, how, how can I be of service? Yeah. 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 But but you have to you have to keep doing what you're doing well to do your merit, and I have to keep doing my art, not to forget about that, you know. But stick the turkey in, make sure he makes it to a farm sanctuary, you know. At the same time, yeah. Thank well, you I so do. much for spending time with me today. Such an honor to um, be in your presence and to hear your your thoughts where you are now and to reflect back and, and to project forward. So I'm, I'm totally honored by, by the time with you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Th- thank you for creating the space for me to be here with you and with everyone else who's going to hopefully tune in, right? Absolutely. We hope, we hope. Okay. So from one coast to the other, uh, greetings. Thank <laughs> and, you. Uh, Good luck with all the future uh, podcasts. Thank you. Keep building. Thanks for listening to the conversation today with artist Dara Birnbaum. My head is still swimming with the things that she shared and talking about the past and the present and the future. The next episode of this podcast is going to be the Ask Me Anything So I've been working on compiling your questions, putting them in order, and getting ready to answer them. So I wish you a happy holidays. And when we see each other again, when we listen to each other again, when we're together again, it will be 2023. And I'm excited. I'm super excited and grateful. Conversations About Art is part of HiZ.art a multi-platform project that connects all to art 
through a podcast series, books, talks program, brand collaborations, TV, and more. This episode was mixed by Dominic Anthony Walsh. Our theme music was composed by Eric McDougall. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and review us on whichever platform you listen, as it helps us further our goal of connecting all to art. We will be back again every other Tuesday with new episodes. Thank you so much for being a part of our community.